Well, I think uh, most of you probably know I'm Roger Kimball, the editor of the New Criterion. And on behalf of myself and, and my colleagues, it's my pleasure to welcome you to this celebratory event for the Friends of the New Criterion. Our June issue just came into the office today. We have copies here. Please pick it up. Uh, there are a few people here, I noticed, who uh, uh, looked a little sad and melancholy. And I, I discovered the reason for that melancholy is that they are not yet subscribers to the New Criterion. <laughs> Anyway, um, <clears throat> most of you are friends of the new Criterion, and uh, I want to thank you for your continued support of our endeavors to keep the flame of civilization burning. Uh, what I've said in the past at such gatherings is all the more true in these gloomy economic times. We could not continue to do what we do without your help. Over the last several years, the Friends of the New Criterion has gone from being a kind of casual adjunct to our activities, to being an integral part of who we are as an intellectual and cultural force. You are not only our supporters, you are part of our extended family. All of us at the magazine are deeply grateful for your investment in the future of the new criterion, and I don't just mean your financial investment, indispensable though that is, but also your investment of time, of energy, conversation, advice, and goodwill. It means a lot to us. Well, it's a special uh, pleasure for me to welcome my friend Roger Scruton to our midst. And I'm especially grateful that he, he took the trouble to come all the way up from Washington just to talk to you. Uh, none of you is uncultured, which means that you are all acquainted with Roger's immense contribution to our civilization. By profession, Roger is a philosopher. But that somewhat musty designation doesn't go very far in acquainting you with the capacious achievement of this modern Goethe. Yes, Roger has written some of the most lucid and also some of the most wise and most moving books of philosophy in our time. I recommend, in particular, his book, The Philosopher on Dover Beach, one of my personal favorites, his ambitious summa, modern philosophy, and the brief but potent reflection, Culture Counts, which I was pleased to publish last year at Encounter Books. But philosophy is really only one arrow in Roger's quiver. He's also a novelist, a librettist, a writer of operas, and a rider to hounds. He's written a very good book about hunting. He is a staunch anti-communist. He did a great deal for uh, Eastern Europe back in the dark days of the Soviet Union, uh, helping to free that part of the world from tyranny. And he's one of our most able intellectual polemicists, the bane of deconstructionists, academic feminists, Muslim fanatics, illiberal liberals, and puritanical humbugs of all descriptions. <laughs> He's also an eloquent apologist for the pleasures of wine. Indeed, for pleasure, period. His new book, I Drink, Therefore I Am, uh, available for a modest sum uh, on the way in or the way out of this room, along with several of his other books from, from Continuum. Uh, pleasure actually, I think, occupies a central place in Roger's thinking. Like Walter Badgett, the English essayist before him, Roger understands that the essence of Toryism is enjoyment. 
Roger understands that true pleasure, pleasure rightly understood, as Tocqueville might have put it, is at bottom a conservative prerogative. It is also an ancient one, as the author of Genesis acknowledged when he observed that God made the world and saw that it was good. It is, to use a locution dear to our Marxist friends, no accident that Jesus' first recorded miracle was the transformation of the base liquid of water into the precious liquid of wine. And pretty good stuff, too, by all accounts. Now, wine, of course, enjoys a distinguished philosophical as well as a distinguished theological pedigree. In the symposium, a brilliant dialogue that I encourage you all to reread, Plato enacts his inquiry into the true nature of love, beauty, and immortality on a stage set in part by the drinking of wine. Symposium, as you will remember, means drinking party, something that we can easily forget if you spend too much time on a contemporary college campus. <laughs> so Roger's book, I Drink, Therefore I Am, occupies an eminent place in this tradition of elevated speculation. Uh, and speaking as a former uh, importer of wine, uh, I know that you will all want to avail yourself of this book. It's an essential vade mecum, and I'm sure that Roger will be happy to uh, assure the success of your investment in this book by inscribing it to you or a designated loved one. Uh, as you will all have recognized, Roger's title recalls Descartes' famous exercise in epistemological hubris. Uh, I feel certain, though, that if, had Descartes argued bibo ergo sum instead of cogito ergo sum, he would have had many more disciples than he does today. <laughs> Whatever can be said about the ontological argument for the existence of God, I think the oenological argument for the existence of God <laughs> has advantages, uh, uh, at least of you know, instant intuitive conviction. To, to alter A.E. Hausman somewhat, wine does more than Milton can to justify God's ways to man. Roger's title also recalls another famous chapter in contemporary thought, namely uh, that of the philosophical group Monty Python and their bracing philosopher's drinking song, which, depending on how the evening unfolds, we might tempt Roger into singing for us later, <laughs> later on. We'll, we'll see about that. But like most serious books, I Drink, Therefore I Am is a tribute to the importance of appearances what shallow people sometimes disparage as the surfaces of things. As Oscar Wilde once put it, only very shallow people do not judge things by their appearances. Roger is not a shallow person, ergo, etc., etc., etc. He describes his new book as a, quote, tribute to pleasure by a devotee of happiness. It is addressed to everyone, to, quote, theists and atheists, to Christians, Jews, Hindus, and Muslims, in short, to every thinking person in whom the joy of meditation has not extinguished the pleasures of embodiment. Unfortunately, not everyone celebrates the fruit of the vine, and Roger has some condign animadversions about, quote, health fanatics, about mad mullahs, and about anybody else who prefers taking offense to seeing another person's point of view. This cheering book contains much wisdom and some sage advice. In his dubious pamphlet on liberty, John Stuart Mill announced one very simple principle 
That, he promised, would encourage beneficent eccentricity, hone everyone's critical faculties, and nurture pleasing experiments in living, that famous phrase. What he, what he in fact managed was to raise querulous, querulousness to the status of a categorical imperative and undermine the rich amplitude of custom, habit, and tradition. The principles that Roger Scruton offers us, on the other hand, are much more benign. The first is that, quote, you should drink what you like in the quantities that you like. It may, he acknowledges, hasten your death, but this is a small cost that will be offset by the benefits to everyone <laughs> around you. <laughs> Another principle is no less salubrious. Drinks which have a depressive effect, water, for example, should be taken in small doses for medicinal reasons only. Mayor Bloomberg, where are you? <laughs> Obviously, you are in for a treat. It is my great pleasure to introduce Roger Scruton. Well, as always, Roger Kimball says far better than I can what I mean. Indeed, <laughs> it, it seems that um, my position in life has at last been defined, namely that I believe that the essence of Toryism is enjoyment. I had never thought of that before, um, but uh, it, it, uh, if it is true, I suppose um, I am the one person who might be considered a counterexample to it, in that when I declared myself to be a Tory in the early days, indeed, when intellectuals ever did such a thing, enjoyment for a long time stopped. Um, however, it is true that it, it, it was recuperated, and recuperated in part through wine. And I just want to uh, introduce the themes of this book uh, in the small amount of time available. And then um, I gather that you can ask me questions. Uh, since you won't have read the book, the questions will be about everything else, which would be, uh, to my view, a rather more productive uh, way of spending the time. But this book has three themes. The first is the, the virtue embodied in wine. The second is the vice of a certain kind of drinker, uh, the, the, the drinker who detaches wine from its social significance. And the third theme is the touching history of a boy from a lower-class background, poised between virtue and vice, who eventually discovered virtue partly through wine. And I describe in this book my three priests of Bacchus, uh, and I think this is something that perhaps people in this room have not experienced, but uh, anybody from an English background of my generation would have experienced that extraordinary uh, dawning of wine on the British sensibility, which occurred during the late 50s and early 60s, um, especially among the lower orders to which I, I belonged. There, there were, of course, um, people who who had spoken about it in our presence. At Christmas time, there was gin and martini and things like that available on the table, uh, but, of, of course, not for children. But the idea of wine as this, this, um, this liquid which actually opened another world, a world in which you were no longer fully the thing that you had been to that moment, that was something which we didn't know. And it all happened during the late 50s and early 60s, um, <clears throat> indeed partly as a result of the lifting of rationing by a conservative government but, part, but more because of the way in which 
uh, and the markets in Europe uh, progressed, as they inevitably did, to the, their pre-war position. And this had an enormous effect on me, because it was the first time that I realized that by drinking something, you actually could be transformed into something slightly more ceremonial, uh, something more decorous than your background had allowed you to be. So for me, wine became a symbol of the social transition into an order which, from which I had been uh, uh, forbidden during my childhood and adolescence. So um, naturally I became extremely interested in it and um, collected information about it, memories of it, and um, began spontaneously to absorb the, uh, the law that attaches itself to wine. Now, um, one of the themes, as I say, of the book is the virtue contained in wine, and I write a lot about virtuous drinking uh, and taking the Greek symposium as my model. The symposium is something which perhaps in the modern world the nearest equivalent to it is the uh, Japanese tea ceremony. Uh, it's a rit total ritualized consumption uh, of wine accompanied by social gestures and an attempt to create out of the company, however impoverished they might be intellectually and morally, something that makes it worthwhile uh, to have been there and something you can take home with you afterwards. And we know that there was at least one occasion where something important was to be taken home because Plato, Plato wrote it down, one of the great masterpieces of um, both of philosophy and of literature. Now that symposium, of course, does not exist uh, as an institution today, but there are various things which uh, resemble it, uh, one being the round of drinks in the pub, uh, which um, was a, an English institution of my childhood, which has a lot to be said for it, but, but which, of course, has been destroyed, and destroyed as much as anything by the existence of wine. Wine is something that you can buy in the supermarket and take home and drink uh, on your own without the expense of uh, entertaining others. Uh, and this, of course, has led to a very uh, a great change in the drinking habits of the British people, uh, who no longer drink in that measured way, offering each other hospitality by buying around for their friends and their colleagues, but um, drink in order to get drunk. And this has caused huge social problems in, in Britain, and uh, indeed has become one of the few things about which the, the um, new government has got anything to say. Um, <laughs> namely, that this shouldn't happen, and, here it, uh, and in particular, alcohol should not be sold below cost. Uh, something which I think is, uh, um, could be uh, objected to on the grounds that this ruling means that uh, the way out of the lower orders provided by alcohol is no longer available. It's only by selling them the stuff below cost that uh, the poorer members of society can actually put a, a foot on this ladder from, from the bottom to the top. Anyway, the, the virtuous drinking has been an important theme throughout history, and um, drink has been rich, drinking wine has been ritualized, in particular in the Jewish religion. And um, this ritualization that, that, that is familiar to the Jews was uh, used to great effect 
by Jesus in the Last Supper, in which he um, uses the symbolism of wine in order to um, perpetuate the memory of his own sacrifice, so that the Christian Eucharist has uh, exists for us as a kind of uh, realization of the deep spiritual significance of wine. That the Christian Eucharist, of course, has though it has its roots in the in Jewish traditions, is also very Greek in its um, in its meaning, uh, and um, has some connection with the rituals of Dionysus, uh, who was who uh, who was um, both warned against <coughs> in ancient Greece and also welcomed, as we know from the play by uh, Euripides the Bacchae, and uh, the. Uh, sin of casting out Dionysus when he uh, enters your community is one for which there's a very heavy price to pay. Well, uh, so the, the theme of virtuous drinking is something which I think uh, has a, a lot to be said for it, and that's one of the themes that I emphasize. But um, <coughs> in our society in Britain, the war against drink is not only conducted by the old-fashioned Puritans, but also by the, this new uh, social element, the mad mullahs, the people, um, uh, usually Salafist um, clergy from Saudi Arabia, who come to our country in order to preach against the sinfulness of the liberal values all around them. Now, a lot of what they say is undeniably true that uh, Western societies are degenerate. There are uh, liberties which people ought not to be taking, and so on. But as we all know, again from John Stuart Mill, um, you can't have your liberties uh, by bits. The, the liberties that you ought not to be taken come along with the liberties that you ought to have. Uh, and the, the difference between them cannot be uh, established by, by law, but only by education. And that's all the more reason, therefore, to drink wine and to drink it properly. And one uh, Islamic philosopher seemed to me to be um, a model for us in this respect, and that is Avicenna, who uh, uh, wrote under the influence of wine, and even confessed to this in his autobiography, that when uh, tired with his arguments, he would retire to his room and drink a cup of wine and be refreshed and go on writing through the night. And he indeed produced what I think could be called uh, an oenological argument for the existence of God, uh, his argument from contingent being, uh, which I expound in this book. So this book has a theological significance. The argument that Avicenna gives, uh, very briefly, is that um, all that is exists contingently, uh, and therefore there is no explanation why it is. But um, there must be an explanation, and the ex this explanation must reside, therefore, in the existence of a, a necessary being, a being that doesn't exist contingently. And then the question arises, how on earth can you understand the presence of a necessary being in this world of contingent entities? And this is where I think wine helps. Uh, I describe in this book uh, a particular episode in my life when um, I moved out of my normal frame of reference, which is um, France, uh, and began drinking further afield, and at a certain stage ended up in Lebanon, drinking there. Um, and um, 
one of the experiences that I had there was that, that of visiting the uh, 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 convent of, the, of Mother Teresa, of the Sisters of Charity, Sisters of Mercy in Beirut, uh, which contained all the rejects from that war-torn society, washed up in helpless condition on the floor of this, uh, this um, bombed-out building, where a young German nun was looking after them. And um, all my Nietzschean instincts, which tell me that you know, charity is a waste of time, that um, uh, pity is a debilitating emotion which you should reject, etc., all these deserted me in one moment when I saw uh, what was happening in that place, the way in which these uh, fragments of, hu of human beings were being made as whole as they could be by the love and charity of the uh, good nuns who looked after them. And I recognized that what the, the work that they were doing uh, could be described as that of converting the fact of existence into a recognition of the gift of existence. That really, it's when being is understood as a gift that you understand that there is such a thing as the, ne the necessary being who sustains all the contingencies of this world. And I went back to my uh, to the uh, where I was staying, um, and um, drank a bottle of Lebanese rosé, and found that that indeed was a true thought. As it, uh, and um, that this is how you should see being, not as a fact but as a gift. And seeing it that way, which uh, wine uh, uh, um, encourages you to do, you then recognise that your that life is not something merely accidental, but something which you are here uh, to, ful and to fulfil and to enjoy to the full and to recognise uh, through that enjoyment your own dependency on something greater than yourself. So uh, there was a, a way in which wine pointed me in another direction. Uh, and um, it led me to think about exactly how it is that all these meanings become embodied in, uh, in, in wine. All the things that people say about it, about uh, what it means to them uh, and the way in which it uh, encapsulates for them uh, a subject of conversation and an object of dialogue. Now, I think this is an extremely interesting philosophical question, whether wine really can mean anything, and uh, I came to the conclusion that actually it doesn't. Uh, it's you that means something, and that meaning is something that you project into the wine. Wine is not a work of art. It's not something which contains its meaning within itself. It is a, a work of craft, which is made in order to encourage the meaning to emerge in you. Um, uh, uh, but nevertheless, um, it's still that, that act of encouragement which gives you the sense that you should be meaning something when drinking a glass of wine is very important. This is why I think that one should never be misled by blind tastings. Blind tastings are absurd things because they, uh, they deprive you of the one thing that can make taste into a serious rational experience, which is knowledge. It's by knowing what this wine is, where it comes from, the history behind it, the saints who are worshipped by those who produced it, and so on. It's, by, it's through that knowledge that you come to project into the wine the meaning of which it is capable. And this, thinking of this made me <coughs> into what's known as a terroriste, someone who believes that um, the terroir is what gives the wine its character and not uh, the grape or the manufacturing process. 
Napoleon said um, that nothing, the future never looks so rosy as when seen through a glass of Chambertin. Uh, and um, <laughs> I, imagine if he'd said, the future never looks so rosy as when seen through a glass of Pinot Noir. You would re- that would completely undermine the strength of his remark. The whole point of this remark is that here is the greatest risk taker on earth uh, seeing the future through this little patch of uh, hallowed territory in Burgundy, where a few old peasants uh, cultivate their one-acre plots and, and produce through their own labour this wonderful distillation of all the things that they believe and feel. Uh, and that, is, of course, is the, uh, gives the poetry to Napoleon's remark, uh, that um, his wild uh, uh, breaking away from all such uh, bound boundaries is something which only made sense to him because actually, uh, in his heart, he was still attached to a terroir himself. So uh, I give a, a pr- prolonged defence in this um, book of the terrorist uh, approach, uh, and um, I can't conceal the fact that uh, my uh, that I'm favourably disposed towards France to the detriment of other places, including America. But I do have something very important to say about one American grape, uh, which, is, which is the um, Norton. I don't know whether anybody of you here have ever drunk a Norton. Uh, it's a, a, a Native American grape, well, it hybridized because they all had to be, but Native American grape grown in Virginia, uh, which has a deep licorice taste uh, and um, which flies in your face like a wasp's nest when you open the bottle. Um, absolutely repulsive to anybody of distinguished uh, and refined taste, but nevertheless embodying the essence of Virginia as no other grape does. Um, uh, and this is for the real terroriste, that is the way to taste America. So, um, very rarely made now, but of course um, uh, it was uh, Jefferson who first uh, made it at uh, Monticello and marketed it as Monticello Claret, of all things. Um, Right, so now, um, finally, just to say um, about this book, uh, it isn't just a tribute to the virtue of wine, uh, nor is it an exploration only of vice, but it's also a work of gratitude. It's the work in which I give thanks uh, for my for this one thing that has given me so much pleasure and also made it possible to cope with very many griefs and sadnesses uh, and it's always made everything uh, look as uh, Napoleon said more rosy than it would otherwise have looked and so I agree with Plato's remark uh, that nothing more excellent has been given by the gods to man than wine That's a very good question. I've forgotten all about them. But um, <laughs> this is uh, a Saint-Véran, I think, isn't it? Um, which is, uh, well, Saint-Véran is a, a, a village in Burgundy, 
from the, uh, on the Côte Chalonnaise, which is the lower, but be below the Côte d'Or, where um, the Macon is the central central town, where Puy-Fuissé comes from. Puy-Fuissé is the next, Puy is the next village to Saint-Véron. Um, I, I think this is a really nice fruity wine, which, um, unlike the, the uh, white burgundies from the Côte d'Or, it doesn't have that nutty character. It's not been matured in oak. It's, it's um, got the straightforward, uh, um, uh, how do you say, malic, uh, apple, apple flavor of the, the Chardonnay in its natural condition. But I think it's, a, you know, it's full of sunlight. Um, the other wine, I haven't tasted yet, but uh, it's a claret from, is it from the Roche des Docks? Yes. Yeah. Well, um, perhaps I'm not the right the, the, the noises seem to have been fairly favourable so far. Phil Ruth said about some glass of wine, it's a naive didactic burgundy, but I think you'll be amused by its presumption. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Well, it, um, I, I, the, the choice of wines this evening was limited by two factors. <laughs> what, one was that it, it ha they had to come from the Century Club, the other was that they had to be from the middle price range. You know. um, <laughs> and um, if given a complete at free hand, I think we might have had something else, but still. <laughs> um, I did my best. Uh, I, I, I have taken, actually, in my life, uh, that one of, one of the... Uh, uh, Roger gave some of my principles of um, describing this book, but uh, another of the principles that I followed is that um, you have to limit your choices. Going on experimenting with new things is great, and uh, of course wine is one of the few, one of the last commodities in the modern world where you really can do this, which has, hasn't been globalised, isn't been reduced to three or four brand names and so on, uh, although the Australians are trying, obviously. Uh, the, uh, but nevertheless, happiness comes when you know what you want. Uh, it's like marriage. At a certain stage, you've got to settle down and say, this, I'm afraid, is, is, well, is my lot. <laughs> and, and, um, and I did settle, I settled down to, to white burgundy uh, and, and red Bordeaux. And um, that's, that's a, I still, within that framework, can make a few adjustments. But that, that is how it is for me. So what were you drinking when you watched the election results? As you know, I haven't got a television, and even if I had one, I don't think I'd watch the, the election <laughs> results. But, um, uh, gosh, that's a difficult question. When you were reviewing. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I, I don't conceal the fact, uh, and this is a company which you don't need to, that I, that I would have liked a conservative government. Uh, instead, we don't have a conservative government. It, we knew it was going to be very unlikely, uh, and our peculiar political system, which um, leaves uh, means that a party with only a very uh, only a quarter of the votes, like the Labour Party had, can still have you know, a vast number of seats in Parliament, meant that there had to be a coalition. Now, um, there there is one issue. One really important issue, which could have been solved if we had a major, had a, uh, a conservative majority government, which is hunting. We could have got rid of that ludicrous legislation, which has taken away from 
me the, the, the right to do the other thing that I enjoy, with, well, one of the other things that I enjoy. Um, but uh, we have to now just see what happens. The, the, a coalition is never a satisfactory thing. Coalition governments never survive in, in, in England, and they're, they're rare things anyway. And um, what one, one thing that's interesting, however, is that the two leaders of the parties, uh, David Cameron and Nick Clegg, are both very young. Uh, and on the evidence suggests that young people are able to agree about things more easily than old people. Uh, they're not as set in their ways and uh, there's still some room for adjustment. So it may be that something emerges from this which they will, um, uh, which might be of some use to the country as a whole, but my own feeling is that's probably a myth uh, to think that way, that it'll fall apart. You name on three parts of your book, mm. the, the virtue, the vice, mm. and the young man. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, it has some autobiographical things here, in recounting my my encounters with with um, with degenerate old people who who led me astray. <laughs> um, that's one way of looking at it. But but they're also uh, people who who charmed me and uh, and pointed to this uh, this uh, way out of the the dreary suburban life into which I I was born. Uh, and um, there are people, three people who um, actually, whom I, I loved, uh, and um, and I think that it was my tribute to them, uh, and it's worth reading about them at least. What can you attribute the shift from drinking whiskey to drinking wine in England? Well, I mean, what happened? Um, wine became cheaper. <laughs> um, uh, whiskey has always been expensive because of the huge tax on it anyway uh, and um, for one reason or another w entering the European Union meant that the taxes on wine couldn't be as high as our governments would like to make them because that would be an interference in uh, free trade between the countries so um, we now you know, more or less everybody can afford wine now and of course, wine comes in from all over the world, South Africa and Australia in particular. And in Britain, I think there's more Australian wine than French wine drunk now. But uh, and that isn't the only explanation. I mean, drinks are associated with cultural shifts uh, as well. And also, wasn't there the drinking of what English friends tell me Claret. Yes. I mean, that goes back quite a way. Yes, claret, that's red Bordeaux, what you've been drinking today. Uh, the word comes from clarté, uh, obviously French, meaning the, 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 the light colored wine that used to be grown in Gascony um, uh, w when that was part of England in the 13th and 14th century. Alas, well, we've lost that part of England. <laughs> we, we, haven't, we haven't lost the name. Uh, but the name is now attached to the wine that comes from Bordeaux, which is not um, a rosé anymore, but uh, it's a deep red. In fact, in fact, red Bordeaux is the deepest coloured wine that there is. 
for various reasons, largely because it's got the Petit Verdot grape and that sort of, that sort of thing that you put into it. Comes in. question is that because soil is so important to me, soil and culture and the things that went into the produ production of the wine, and since there is no wine produced in England, I must be a kind of rootless postmodern person uh, whose soul is really elsewhere and not in the country uh, where he makes his home. Um, I would say that, that, um, that this is partly true. <laughs> But that, um, uh, as the last question made clear, it, it's not our fault that France is no longer part of England. <laughs> uh, uh, and um, we have always tried to reclaim it precisely through the bottle. That's the thing that, that puts us back in touch with the place where we really belong. So, uh, and I've always... I, I describe in this book my... My uh, times in France, I was there for a year, and it still is my spiritual home. But for that very reason, I don't go back there for fear of seeing how it's been mutilated. I, um, you know, and um, you know that, that's something experience that many people have. But actually, on the topic of English wine, there is wine now made in England. Um, but it, you had to be very careful because of the European laws as to what, as to whether it's um, permissible to sell it. Uh, our neighbour made wine in Malmesbury. Malmesbury used to be one of the great wine-growing areas in the medieval warm period, and um, uh, he sold it as English table wine uh, and was sued by the European Union because there isn't such a place as England. Uh, there is the United Kingdom... Uh, and, there are few, and there are the regions, but there is no such legal entity. And this is very frightening. <laughs> but there you are. That's why I think one should reaffirm one's sovereignty over, over Gascony. <laughs> Megan has... Um, well, I, I th yeah, I mean, I, I see the cocktail as, uh, as something which has a completely different uh, cultural meaning from, from wine. It's, uh, wine is, a, is uh, something consecrated. It's something which, uh, which, is a, which comes to you as a a form of communication with a particular part of the world and the community which produced, produced it. Cocktail is a, a manufactured product whose origins are totally obscure to you. Could be industrial alcohol for all you know. Um, 
the thing is made out of standardized ingredients which are there to give a shot of uh, excitement on, on first being swallowed and, um, you know, and are there because of the standardized taste. It's like, like HP sauce or, you know, or tomato ketchup or something. It's not, it, it isn't a venture out into communication with a place and, uh, and a people. That's, that's what I would say. It's something which has a different kind of significance. There's a gentleman in the back. Uh, what do you make of the, uh, the rise of the spirits over the past sort of five, ten years? Virgin Coke to your end, one. Their sales have been growing much faster. Right. Well, um, that's interesting. Uh, it could be, I mean, there's part, partly economic factors. Spirits are much cheaper that relatively, relative to people's income than, now than they were. But it's also that as you become uh, more of a wino, your need for, a, for alcohol increases. Uh, and after a certain, a certain point, as I know from many of my friends, only a shot of whiskey will do the job. Uh, you've got beyond the point where, where something as dilute as wine can really satisfy you. And I suspect that that is happening in our societies, that people are shifting gradually towards the, um, the strong end of the spectrum. It certainly is happening in Scotland, and I think our government is particularly worried about it. Um, although they do all vote Labour in Scotland, and it doesn't seem to be a bad thing if, if they ruin their health in that way. Time <laughs> <laughs> for one more question? Oh, two more. Um, Have you ever thought of producing your own wine, or have you ever considered the role of cider playing in the English drinking? Apple, apple producing yes. cider? Yes. Well, we did, when I, was, when I was young, we did make our own wine with elderberries. I described that in this book, elderberry wine and, and apple wine. Um, it's incredibly labor-intensive and... Uh, it used to be worth it then because a bottle of wine was was the the little margin of uh, of luxury on my father's weekly income. You know we, that would have been taken by one bottle of wine. So my mother used to make elderberry wine, which we um which, which was drunk with some approval. But I don't think it's now it's feasible because of the ease with which wine can be imported. But, uh, uh, in Austria, people still make fruit wine, and it's sold in the shops, wine made out of red currants and, and things like that. And um, there are older people for whom that is their preferred tipple, but I think very few young people will drink it. Just uh, any thoughts on the excesses of uh, wine criticism, the writing about wine? I don't mean yours, I mean, you know, there are the... the uh, Yes. Spectator, and uh, maybe the correlation between that and the uh, equivalent grossness of public drunkenness. Yes, that's a very good question. I, I do write say something about wine speak, uh, and in particular Robert Parker. Though uh, I, I was advised to take out what I most of what I wrote about Robert Parker because apparently he sues all the time. Well, your secret's safe with us. Okay. Oh, is it okay? <laughs> right. Well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
I mean, that, that whole thing is, is nonsense, of course, but it, it, uh, we know that people, people do, when people have a lot of money and don't know what to do with it, instead of giving it away, they do things like, like buy President Kennedy's um, golf um, uh, sticks or whatever, or, some, or a handkerchief once used. Uh, by by um, President Reagan, you know, so that people spend money on on things which have kudos, uh, and um, this is the whole you know, Veblen thesis about conspicuous consumption. A lot of what do we spend our money on? We spend money on in order to show off with it, to to convince others that we have acquired a social status by, by doing so. And I think this is true of wine too. But then when people who don't actually know anything about wine or, or appreciate it uh, want to spend this, their money in this way, they also need the experts who will advise them. Uh, and those experts are, are like um, you know, priests giving you indulgences for your sins or whatever. They're, they're people who will make good what, it, what your decision is. They will give you the, the, the spiel that you can uh, run off in order to prove to your friends that it was worthwhile after all spending 500 pounds on this bottle. So you, there's a huge market there for the self-appointed expert, and, and especially in America. Uh, as you know, there are a lot of people here who collect bottles, who want every year of Gruel La Rose from 1945 to, 19, uh, uh, to 2009 or whatever. And um, they will look at what Robert Parker says, because he says things which seem to make it into, a, uh, into an objective science, whether, whether this has or, or, or does not have the qualities that uh, justify it being in the list. But um, the actual language is so awful that you know that it can't be describing the taste. You can only describe tastes through metaphors. And metaphors are only, only work if they're poetic. Uh, so only a, 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 someone with, the, with literary talent if not genius, could actually describe a wine. So all these attempts, these plodding attempts to give marks and uh, in talking about the black currant on the pa palate and the, the forward aroma and the uh, uh, lingering and the you know uh, 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 on the larynx and all this stuff uh, 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 is complete nonsense. Uh, and um, even if it's true, it has no relevance to the taste of the wine. Uh, the only you know. Uh, if he were to be a wine critic, it would be someone like Baudelaire, and he could probably do better at some other profession than wine critic. Well, that's it. I thank Roger for entertaining us.